I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Two of my favorite verses. If you've been with us at all on Sundays, you know I often refer to them to make the point that for the believer it is always forward and upward. Philippians chapters 3 and 4 and quieting exercises in part 6 of our series, The Can-Do and Joyous Christian. Hello, and welcome to the Transforming Lives Together podcast. It can be difficult to continue moving forward when we are in the midst of trouble in this life. Yet, it is necessary for us to do so if we are to experience the joy of the Lord in the midst of the trouble. As we will discover in our study for this week, there are practical exercises we can do to keep us from focusing on the trouble and allow us to continue to focus on the joy of the Lord. Before we turn it over to Father Ward, we want to say thank you for your time as you tune in each week. We pray you are blessed and encouraged by the content of this podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. And if you have enjoyed what you're hearing from this podcast, please help us out by leaving a five-star rating and review. Your positive feedback will help us reach more people with this podcast. And now here is Father Ward with the sixth part of the can-do and joyous Christian. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for another day, another night you've given us, and for another week. We know, Lord, that these are tumultuous times, that it's been uh, quite a year, and uh, we just pray that you continue to uh, renew our spirit, renew our mind as we spend time with you and spend time with one another. We pray that you would reorder our priorities so that they reflect more the kingdom. And we pray that your Holy Spirit now would bless our time together and really uh, enlighten us and see uh, clearly your truth and your word and your love and wisdom, which is found in Jesus and in his word, your word. We thank you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So um, one of the things we've been doing, even though our study is on Philippians, We always uh, start with John's Gospel, the reading from John 15, Jesus' words concerning abiding in Him. His Father is the uh, vine dresser, He is the vine, and we are the branches. And apart from Him, we cannot bear any fruit. The fruit of the Holy Spirit, which would be the fruit of our inner being, our attitude, The fruit of good works, which would be our actions, what we do in terms of every day. And the fruit of bringing others into the kingdom, and that would be the fruit of our impact in our relationships. That's our relational fruit, spiritual fruit, relational fruit, and actually um, uh, outward uh, works, uh, that type of fruit. So anyway, uh, those are the things that we will bear in our lives if we're truly believers, if we're truly followers of Christ, and that means we will be abiding or remaining relationally in him. And so Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
these things I have spoken to you, here's the clincher, so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. So it's a win-win, both externally and internally, both presently and in the future. There is no loss when we follow Jesus except for the loss of our fleshly nature, which is a huge battle that we face every day. As I noted earlier, just because you're born again does not mean that you no longer have to uh, battle the flesh. Just because you're born again does not mean you not, that you do not have to grow in maturity uh, and that maturity, that uh, quest to be like Jesus, uh, involves tests, trials, and tribulation. It just goes with it. So let's continue now in Philippians chapter 3. If you're at home, you can open up your Bible to chapter 3, verse 12. I'll be reading now from verse 12, and we're going to take it a, a verse at a time. And so, Paul writes first, not that I've already obtained it, that is the resurrection, that is perfection in Christ, not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect. That word that we translate perfect, in some translations it may read mature, that basically means you've come to that place where you should be, be like Christ. Uh, no one attains that in this life. And Paul recognizes this, but he says, I press on. In other words, I continue so that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. In other words, that I may receive that, experience it, because that's exactly why Jesus went to the cross. That is exactly what Jesus wants for all of us. That's the ultimate so when Paul says that he counts everything as loss of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as Lord, he also is saying that he doesn't know him fully yet. In fact, recall in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when Paul writes on that wonderful chapter, uh, or uh, in that wonderful chapter on love, he says that right now we only see dimly as through a glass opaquely. If you've ever been in a bathroom with uh, glass windows, you know that they are opaque for a reason, so you can't look in, but you also, also can't look out sometimes. And it's all just kind of fuzzy. And actually, life right now, uh, in terms of our understanding, compared to what it will be like when we see Jesus face to face, is fuzzy. That's why we don't understand everything. We don't always see things clearly uh, in this life. And so Paul is saying, right now, even though I know the Lord, even though I'm growing in love with the Lord, I see through a glass dimly. But then when I see Jesus face to face, I will know in full. It will be a perfect relationship, a perfect knowledge. That's why he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. When we die, we gain relationally, socially, emotionally, intellectually, spiritually. Go down the list, psychologically, uh, physically. It's great gain. And so he presses on. And then he says, verse 13, brethren, I do not regard myself as laying, having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Two of my favorite verses. 
If you've been with us at all on Sundays, you know I often refer to them to make the point that for the believer, it is always forward and upward, forward and upward. And so the past, the purpose of the past is to give thanks for the blessings, the great memories and the good that was done in Christ's name and through you. That's the only thing that will remain. That's the only thing that's eternal. So those good things that have come about through our relationships with God and with each other. And then the other reason you uh, remember the past is to learn from your mistakes, your past failures, but you don't stay there and you certainly don't dwell on all the bad experiences. You want to get away from them. In fact, I believe one of the reasons why that we don't remember everything, you know, there's only a handful of people who have instant mem memory that can retain, that can actually tell you exactly what happened on a specific date in their life. It's pretty wild. Uh, but in any event, the reason why we have faulty memories, I believe, is to protect us because what happens is we not only forget the good experiences, but we forget the bad experiences as well. They don't become as real. Now, there's things that can trigger those experiences because we know from studying the brain that all those memories are there. They're permanently etched in your brain. It's just trying to get them out. But, uh, and then, of course, people will, try to, will suppress memories and won't have proper healing, and then they're still kind of there, and then they might pop up at the wrong time. That's why we talked about getting stuck in any of those levels in your brain function. Remember the attachment, the assessment, the attunement centers, if you get stuck in any of those first three. Uh, so from trauma, uh, that's going to reside in your memory, in your brain. Uh, and so uh, we need to understand that that can have a negative effect on us uh, in, our, in our lives. But um, bottom line is we don't dwell on the past. In fact, when I talk to people who have lost a loved one, like when I was there when my, my mom died basically in my arms, right? I saw her, she just went right in front of me, okay? And it was not easy. About, all right. The bottom line is when that happens is it plays in your mind and then it's like a loop. And... If you continue down that road, basically you're reliving the pain, but we need to understand that the pain's done. There's no more. They're in a better place. You're done with it. Uh, but that's very hard to do. But when you sleep on it, when you have time, that distances yourself from that experience. And we'll talk about later too, towards the end, how you can uh, distract yourself and reset and refocus your mind. But it's going to be very hard anyhow when you lose a loved one. I'm just using that as an example because that's the deepest pain. That's attachment pain, a level one pain in, in your brain. Um, because even though you may not, you, you know to not think about it, because the loss is so powerful uh, and, and it's normal to grieve and you should grieve, it's not healthy to try to suppress your grief. So you can try to change the thinking, but you're not going to be able to change the grief. Now, what people can do is they can try to escape from that grief by being busy and, and just ignoring it. But what happens is the grief then goes dormant. You're going to have to deal with it sooner or later. And if you want to deal with your grief later, it just means you're going to deal with it a lot longer rather than having that healing process and be able to uh, basically rise above it, which you can obviously uh, through your faith, again, through your beliefs, knowing what's really true, through your relationships, and through giving thanks and thinking about all the good things. And that's, again, the role of the past. So when you look at your past in that perspective, then you have to be looking forward to the future and realize that with God, there's always a brighter future. There's always a new tomorrow, right? I don't know if that's a Walt Disney thing too. Is some there's some uh, some I remember when we were down there in Disney World. Uh, I forgot what it was called. You know where they showed the different 
uh, interiors of houses through the decades. Does anybody remember that? Uh, I forgot what it was called, but they did some song like A New Tomorrow. But anyhow, with the Lord, that's the true uh, New Tomorrow. And so we press on. And so what is that? Why do we have that wonderful future? Because it's, the, uh, it's for the prize. Now, what's neat is look at the terminology Paul uses. He says toward the goal. Now the goal that is translated from the Greek mean, it can also mean finish line or the target that an archer has. So the goal Paul is looking towards is knowing Jesus fully. And the prize is the blessings that come with knowing Jesus. And the prize is heaven. It's that perfect relationship with the Lord, salvation. And that is, again, identified the prize as the upward call, right? He says, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So we're again brought to Christ. Uh, Then verse 15, let us therefore as many as are perfect have this attitude. So what's the attitude? If you're really perfect, the attitude is to realize you're not really perfect. Did you catch that? So if you're really mature in this Christian life, then you realize you're not really fully mature. That's why these Christians, these people who get all full of themselves and self-righteous and holier than thou, I mean, and oh, I'm, I'm there. get a break, you know, get off your high horse. Paul's saying, no, have this, if you have any, if you, in anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. And he might, he might reveal it to these folks in a harsh manner, right? He might uh, knock them off their high horse. Because we also read in the scriptures that God disciplines those whom he loves. Verse 16, however, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. So even though we understand we're not there yet, even though we know that the goal is still future and is not going to be fully realized until we're in heaven, what does Paul say? But we keep living to that same standard. We don't lose heart. We don't give up. We try to do better. That's the attitude of the can-do Christian. All right, so while Paul continues, brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Now, this is, this is all right brain now. Paul isn't just talking about following doctrine or following rules or, ex- or, or laws, but following his example, how he lives his life. And there's a pattern. There's a pattern to everyone's life. Actually, if you look at this world, if you look at history, if you look at people, if you look at everything, there's always patterns to everything. And the pattern of your life is determined by the daily habits and priorities you have, by the disciplines or the lack thereof in your life. That will present a pattern. A pattern is something that is consistent day in and day out. And so Paul is saying to walk that's live, another, it's a metaphor for live, according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. So now these are believers, but they're walking because they're walking. They're supposedly walking with the Lord, but they're actually enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, why are they enemies? There's four characteristics of these folks. Number one, well, their end is destruction. That's the opposite of salvation. The Greek word there means uh, judgment, in a sense. You know, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a judgment with the idea of, of destruction. 
God is their appetite, so it's their fleshly desires. You know, what does it say in 1 John, right? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life, these things are passing away, and anyone who does them is, uh, is passing away. Uh, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Uh, let's see, then... Their glory is in their shame. In other words, they don't really have any conscience when it comes to these things. They think it's fine. And then, number four, they set their minds on earthly things. So, notice that really the beginning is their thought life. You could reverse this. They set their mind on earthly things, so therefore, they glory in their shame. They, their God is their appetite, and then as a result, their end is destruction. But it all first begins in their mind, their worldview, their understanding of things. What have they bought uh, that isn't good? You know, they drank the Kool-Aid, so to speak. You know, uh, that uh, metaphor, unfortunately, from 79, Jim Jones and the cult there. But um, 1979. But anyway, uh, so who are these folks? Well, scholars believe they're either one of two groups or both groups. Uh, they would be possibly the Judaizers in some respect. I mean, that's a lesser view, but it could be the Judaizers because they are focused on the flesh, but yet the problem with that is, it's, it's hard to say. Most, most scholars would say they're the antinomians. Now, the antinomians, literally that means anti-law. They basically said you can sin more because if you sin more, then grace abounds, right? That we're already forgiven. So it doesn't matter if you blow it. It doesn't matter if you uh, aren't really trying to do better. That God's grace is sufficient. And uh, Paul condemns this uh, in his, a couple of his other uh, letters. Um, you know, he says you don't sin, so grace abounds. So the antinomian position was like the other extreme from the legalist position. The bottom line is whether you believe that God loves you so much that it doesn't matter and we're all going to heaven and you're a universalist, that's one extreme, that's wrong. Uh, but you're, trusting in the, you're basically trusting in the flesh because you're saying that you know, God uh, doesn't want you to uh, submit. Uh, or the other extreme, we're saying, oh no, you gotta do everything, you gotta be perfect. And if you follow all these rules and regulations, uh, that's also trust, trusting in the flesh but in the opposite. That's basically saying, uh, I'm going to try to control the flesh and look at me as I do it versus I'm just going to let my flesh go and I'm under grace, so it doesn't matter. Both are uh, heresies, both are wrong, both are condemned. Now, this was not true of the Philippian church. Otherwise, he'd be dressing it more specifically. The Philippian church was commended, remember? They didn't have that many issues. Uh, but it is true of the wider church uh, throughout um, the Roman Empire as the church expanded. Verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's a wonderful reminder that our true citizenship is not here in the United States. It's not of this world. It is in heaven. Now, the Philippians could really appreciate this because they were a Roman colony. And although they were a city in Macedonia, uh, they had the privileges of Roman citizenship. And so they could look, 
they could see this imagery and kind of vision as they look to Rome and realize their citizen lies in Rome. And because of Rome, they've got these special benefits in the empire. In the same way, when we remember that our citizenship is in heaven, we remember that we have not just special benefits and blessings awaiting us, but we have rights in the here and now. We have access to the Father. We are indwelt by the Spirit. And if we sincerely believe that, then not only do we walk according to the pattern and example that we've been given in Christ and the apostles and in his word, but we also seek to uh, show this to others, right? If we're good citizens, we, we do the same thing. And um, we, uh, we have to use those rights. We have to use that authority. Uh, we have to move in it. Uh, otherwise, that we're not taking advantage of that citizenship and the rights that come with that citizenship. Now notice what he says, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's pointing us to the blessed hope, the return. Uh, that's what we long for right now. In fact, in the Psalms, when we read, pray for Jerusalem, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we're basically praying for the second coming because there will be no peace in Jerusalem until Christ returns. Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. This is awesome because Christ has supreme authority over everything and as having supreme authority also has power over everything. So remember, what did Jesus say before he ascended? He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. So the Father has the authority, and he bestows that authority upon the Son. And then with that authority, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all the nations. But with authority comes power. And so Jesus gives us the authority, but he also gives us the power, and the power is the Holy Spirit. And so that's why after or before he ascended, and when he gave the Great Commission, he also told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. And then the Holy Spirit was poured upon them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. So when we go out, we need to understand as citizens, we've now got the authority of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we've got the power. But again, we have to use it. And this power then is the same power that will transform our bodies so anyway, so the body of our humble state means our physical body. The physical body is subject to disease. It's subject to the desires of the flesh. Uh, it really isn't that strong. I mean, it's fearfully and wonderfully made, but it's weak. And it's subject to death. And God will transform with that power. The same power he brought everything into existence. It's the same power that he's going to transform our body and what's awesome is the, pro the promise that it will conform with Jesus' resurrected body. The same body that came out of the tomb is the same type of body we will have. It will not be limited to time and space. This time and space continuum will not be subject to disease and death. It will not bleed. We will be like Superman. So now we go into chapter 4. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown. Isn't that awesome? He continues to identify the Philippians as brothers and sisters. We are brothers and sisters in Christ through the blood of Christ and through the love of God. We're family forever. What a wonderful promise. This is such a nice 
blessing too to people who maybe did not have good family growing up or don't have any more uh, blood family, um, you know, biological relations. But we always have family when you're in part of the body of Christ. Uh, and that's why we need to learn to love each other like family. But notice that Paul calls them his joy, my joy and crown. Again, highlighting that true joy comes from relationships. And crown, that word crown is Stephanos. It's the laurel wreath that a marathon runner would receive after winning the race. And it's the same word used in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8, when Paul talks about how after he says, I fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the fight, faith. And he says, now there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness that the Lord when he appears will give to me, but not to me only, but all those who loved his appearing. In other words, everybody's looking forward to Christ coming again. I think that might be verse 7 actually, but in any event, it's in either verse 7 or uh, 8 of chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. It's the same crown. So the crown that we're awarded, uh, that, or the metaphor that's used that Paul talks about, is not the diadem crown, the royal crown that kings and queens would have with the jewels, but it was the simple Stephanos, the same crown he's talking about here. So what's significant about that? Well, Remember that in 2 Timothy 4, Paul talks about how he's finished the race. And so the race that he's talking about is the race of life. And the Bible then, when he uses the laurel wreath, he's basically saying that our life is like a marathon or long cross-country race. And you've heard me teach on this before, that the difference between a 100-yard dash is a 100-yard dash, you can see the end, it's a straight shot. And you give it all you got. And then it's done. But a marathon, a long cross-country trek is up and down. You don't know what's around the bend. It's going to take endurance. You're going to feel really good in some stretches, and you're going to feel really lousy. You're going to feel like quitting at times. And the Christian life is not a 100-yard dash. You know, sometimes these young believers, they're all zealous, and they're going full bore, and then they're going to burn out. No, it's a marathon. We need to pace yourself. And so in the same way, as we receive this laurel wreath, because of our relationship with Jesus and seeing us through the journey of life, in the same way, we all are together in this journey of life and we grow in love and relationship with one another through the ups and downs of life. So you can see that's why Paul is saying, you are my crown. Because not only do I, um, and my joy and my crown, not only do I love you and, and you are uh, something that I can look at and say, wow, look at what God has done. Because of my faithful obedience, look at what's God, the good that God has done in their lives. And so that crown is the good, represents the good that comes through the trials of life as we share life together and love each other in Christ. And so that's kind of the, the imagery that I believe Paul is, is conveying when he identifies the Philippian believers as my joy and my crown. In this way, though, stand firm in the Lord. So remember, unity is going to be a characteristic of true believers. It should be of the church, should be of families. But that unity comes from standing firm in the Lord. The center of our unity is not just the sake of unity. It isn't even our love for one another. The center of our unity must first and foremost be our love and commitment to God 
and his word and his standards. So then he goes into addressing a problem that there was in the church. There were two leading women in the church. Their names are Eudiah uh, uh, and Syntyche. And they had a disagreement. They actually had done work with Paul. But there was a disagreement. It was not a doctrinal disagreement. It was a personality disagreement. And notice that he uses the verb to address both of them. So they both were at fault. He says, I urge Eudiah and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. In other words, hey, be reconciled. Get your act together. So what is going to be a more common conflict in churches? It's not going to be over doctrine in, internal because everybody pretty much agrees to whatever the doctrine that's being taught. And hopefully it's solid doctrine. But it's going to be personality clashes. And so Paul is urging them. But notice too, he says, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women. <laughs> so Paul is basically saying if the women can't do it, I have someone else. Now, what's fascinating is we don't know who this true companion is. Obviously, the Philippian church would know that it must be someone special to Paul. But what's interesting, though, is the words that we translate as true companion actually could be a personal name. So what I'm, I guess what I'm saying is that you know how names have meanings. Our names all have meanings. And sometimes in the scriptures, a name would actually be uh, like um, Peter, Petra, Rock. You know, same thing. But in here, true companion could have actually been the name of the person. Uh, we don't know. But so in, in most translations, they just translate it as true companion. But obviously, it was a specific person that Paul knew that they knew who it was. And he was appealing to that person to make sure that these two women make up. Because they've shared in my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, isn't that great? So Paul first talks about standing firm, the importance of unity. Then he says, hey, you got two that are out of order. Get reconciled. And remember, we're all, all of us, our names are written in the book of life. The book of life, that expression goes back to the Old Testament. There are several examples of it. Uh, Daniel and other uh, books of the Old Testament. And it's wonderful because that's what we want, right? You want your names written in the book of life because if your name is written in the book of life, you've got eternal life. Then we continue, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's a verb. Joy is emotion. It's deeper than happiness. Happiness is just based on circumstances. But joy is still an emotion. But joy comes again from relationships. Joy is that emotion that's grounded. But it comes from doing things. It comes from spending time with God. It comes from recalling what we have in God. Remember, it comes from appreciation, beliefs, and connections. And it's something that, there, in other words, there are things that we have to do in order to cultivate joy in our lives and to return to joy. And so Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. And then notice he repeats himself. Again, I will say rejoice. And he's already told us to rejoice about three more times prior to this throughout the first part of the epistle. And then he says, uh, let your gentle spirit be known to all. That is the attitude we're to have towards other people. What's fascinating, though, is this gentle spirit in the Greek. It's hard to translate because it has a lot of different nuances. And so uh, some ways to look at it is uh, yielding, um, being uh, deferential to someone, you know, um, being um, uh, patient with them, kind of. But what I kind of like, uh, being reasonable, 
a reasonable person, you know, a fair person. All of that's kind of conveyed in a gentle spirit. A meekness certainly kind of conveys that. But I kind of, what came to mind were, were simply the words calm, cool, and collected. That's what you want to be, right? Calm, cool, and collected. Someone who's calm, cool, and collected, it's okay. They got their emotions under control. They're steady. They're sure. They don't get easily rattled. They're going to be there for you. That's, I believe, what Paul is trying to convey to us when he says, let your gentle spirit be made known to all, all people. And then he says, be anxious for nothing. Now the world would have us be anxious. Just turn on the television. Do you want to get anxious? Just turn on the TV and you'll be anxious before you know it. Unless you are just watching Looney Tunes or, uh, you know, uh, the, the, some of the cartoons out there, um, you know, maybe some of the older shows from the 50s and 60s. But anyway, uh, but the antidote to anxiety, to worry, to fear is prayer. And so Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer. Now what's fascinating is the word that's translated peer, prayer here means worshipful prayer. Now, what I, what I think is neat about that is, how does Jesus begin the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What do many of the Psalms begin with? Lifting God up. So our prayer life must first be about praising God, giving glory to Him, lifting Him up. Because you see, when I lift up God, I get my eyes off myself and my problems, and I'm getting them focused on God. When I lift up God, I'm getting my eyes focused on His character, on His attributes, um, and therefore, because if I understand his character, that he is trustworthy, that he is true, that he is holy, that he is loving, and then when I focus on his attributes, that he's all-knowing, that he's all-powerful, that he's everywhere, then what that does is that confirms my faith in his promises. Because we don't walk by what we see, we don't walk by what we feel, but we walk or live by faith in the promises of God and his word. And so we begin our prayer with worshipful prayer and then supplication. That's letting our needs be known. Now we know that God knows our needs before we even ask and yet we're told to ask. Jesus said you have not, or well Jesus didn't say that, it says that in James. James chapter 4, you have not because you ask not. But then Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be opened. And there are several times in the Gospels, throughout the Gospels, that Jesus says to ask. Now, why is it so important to ask if God already knows our needs ahead of time? Because when we ask, we're expressing our dependence on God. We're seeking him out. And it's also part of a discernment process because sometimes the stuff we ask for isn't really what we need. But we can't learn that until we start to focus on what do I really need, what am I really seeking, and what is God really showing me, and how is God providing? And then when God provides what I've asked for, that confirms his will in my life, and then that will lead me to gratitude and appreciation. You see how that works? So that's why we are to ask, but we don't have to keep asking over and over again the same thing. Remember Jesus rebuked just vain repetition. So that's why the Lord's Prayer, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So we start with the kingdom and the will. Um, as it is in heaven, 
Give, then there's supplication. Give us this day our daily bread. Provision, right? Uh, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Pardon. Deliver us from evil. Protection. Now that's not the all-in be-all prayer, but I mean it gives you the big pillars, the Lord's Prayer. So we're to ask for God's help. Uh, and then we give thanksgiving. We thank God because you know why thanksgiving is so powerful, gratitude? Because it gets us focused on what God's already provided and then it gets us looking forward to what, thanking him ahead of time for what he's going to do because God's going to do something big, something special, right? Something new. I mean, that's why Oral Roberts, he had that great uh, phrase years ago, you know, expect a miracle, right? That's that expectation. And when we start doing thanksgiving, then we're expecting God's going to do something and we thank him ahead of time as well as thank him for what. And then what happens? You're letting your request be made known to God and then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding or which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ. Now, what does that mean when the peace of God uh, surpasses understanding or comprehension? It means that in the natural sense, in the natural realm, it can't be understood. No non-believer is going to understand the peace of God. The peace of God is only understandable if you yourself experience it. And even then, you can't fully comprehend or understand it. It's just there. And it is what guards our hearts. That's kind of the uh, point of our soul or spirit, our personality, who we really are as a spiritual being. And it guards our minds from going off because we're brought back. Oh yeah, I know it's really true. God's with me. I'm filled with his peace. And then Paul says, finally, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So Paul closes this section out with emphasis on our thought life and then with emphasis on our uh, walking out the Christian life, our actions, our conduct, our minds, our thought life, and our conduct. Now, what is our thought life? That's left-centered. What is our conduct? That's right, that's right brain. So both are being uh, uh, focused on here. What are our thoughts to be on? He gives these examples. Whatever is true. So that is whatever is valid, whatever is just real in a good sense. I mean, uh, whatever is true, whatever is, is real that is edifying, that would be an example of uh, true. Whatever is honorable, that would be something that's noble, that we, uh, you can admire, uh, that is, uh, you know, I can respect that. That's what honorable uh, means. Whatever is right, that means whatever is just in terms of pertaining to God's law. You know, doing the right thing, celebrating the right thing that's done. Uh, I give you different uh, adjectives to, in the actual notes. Um, whatever is lovely, that's basic. I'm sorry, whatever is pure, that would be morally uh, uh, righteous from the heart. You know, that the, if something is pure, it means that it's, it's a morally, uh, the motives are good and, and it, it's just, 
there's there's no um, spot to it. Um, uh, whatever is lovely would be that which is um, uh, likable or, or attractive in a good sense. Uh, let me see some of these. Uh, I don't remember all the different adjectives. Um, agreeable, uh, good repute recalls to mind things again that are admirable and of high reputation. And then Paul changes things up to include a conditional clause. If there is anything worthy of praise or excellent. In other words, we have to make that choice. It's a conditional clause to say that you have to choose and discern what's right and good. And then he says, let your mind dwell on these things. And if your mind dwells on these things, something's going to happen. Not only are you going to have peace, but you can know that the God of peace is with you. And the same goes for what we practice, what we do. Paul says, the things you have learned and received. Now, what he's talking about is the sound doctrine that they received from him as the apostle. So that's left-centered brain. And then he says, and heard and seen in me. So Paul is talking about the things they actually heard him say and the things they have actually saw him do. That's right brain. So isn't that neat? Paul is basically saying to practice everything in terms of your left brain, the knowledge and learning, and then the actual doing the uh, right brain. And that's when you're going to have peace. And not only are you going to have peace, but you're going to have joy as well. Okay, so now, uh, what happens when you get a little discombobulated emotionally, when you get stressed out? All right, well... Because of the way our, um, our nervous system is set up, any type of stress causes hormones, adrenaline to throw, flow throughout the body, and it will affect you. So that's why if you get anxious or fearful, uh, you'll start to feel, you know, your head get hot, your neck get hot. You know, you might get that nauseous feeling or tightness in your stomach. Uh, you know, there's all sorts of things that physically happen, and it's because your automatic nervous system uh, is overreacting uh, or is dealing with all this. And I should say that the automatic nervous system is trying to control your response to stress. And a good way to look at it is the uh, sympathetic branch of the ANS, that's the term they use for it, is like a gas pedal. Uh, and so, you know, when you think about a gas pedal, you put, you put it... You press it on and the, and the car goes faster and faster. And so when you uh, get angry or if you have anxiety, that's like putting your gas, you know, your foot on the gas. You also have a, what's called a parasympathetic branch, which is like a brake. And so if you don't put your, uh, if you put your foot on the brake too much, you know, that's going to cause a problem too. And that would be uh, a fear uh, and freeze um, uh, you know, that type of um, uh, thing when you, you get overwhelmed. And that will wear you down and you'll feel sluggish. Uh, and so when we have a healthy automatic nervous system, it's able to na uh, navigate both. The fact of the matter is you can actually get stuck with both your foot on the brake in your nervous system as well as on uh, the pedal. And so if you have high anxiety are easily angered, or you've gotten angry. Again, that's you're getting stuck with the gas. Uh, if you are depressed and apathetic, that's on the brake. 
And so when your body feels like it wants to explode, then most likely you've got your foot on both the brake and the gas. And so self-regulating, that's what you want to do, refers to our ability to recognize and control the impact of the emotions on the body and your nervous system. And so self-regulating means the ability to try to self-calm, to quiet yourself. That's important if you're going to return to joy. And so if you're able to do that, and it's basically to calm the hyperarousal in your, that's causing your front prefrontal cortex uh, of the brain to not so short circuit. So remember your prefrontal cortex is your joy center. It's, how you, it's when you act like yourself, when everything's going pretty well. So, you, so if, if you don't get this other control, if you can't self-regulate, you're not going to be able to act like yourself. So a person who self-regulates, who's able to calm themselves, then is able to help someone else do the same. Perfect example of, of this that we all know uh, is parents and children. So children will all of a sudden, you know, lose it because of different things, but a parent is able to come in there, get themselves under control, and then help the child get under control. And what, how the child gets under control is observing what the parent's doing. That's through the mirror neurons. And so the child learns to self-regulate by looking at how the parent self-regulates. Does that make sense? That's kind of the pattern here. Um, and so what are some strategies uh, for doing that? Now, everybody has different uh, ways of kind of calming down. Um, but these are some things that maybe you haven't heard of. So basically, because the nervous system uh, affects our body and our emotions affect our body, that's why some diseases are because people have not been able to get their stress under control. You know, it, it, uh, uh, all that, those chemicals, all those hormones going in the body can cause the body to break down. Uh, and so what we want to do is we want to do quieting exercises for the body and also for the mind. Mind and body. So the first way to quiet your body would be what is called breathing in a square. The Navy SEALs are taught to do this. And it's basically you view a square this way. You inhale, that's going up for four seconds. And then you hold it going across for four seconds. Then you exhale for four seconds. And then you hold it for four seconds. And you do this three to four times. This is effective for calming yourself down. If you're upset, if you're really anxious, um, if you just feel overwhelmed. So breathe in a square. If the Navy SEALs learn to do this, then I think you can take it to the bank. Second way is to actually exaggerate emotion. You know, when babies are afraid, what do they do? You know, they throw up their hands. And that's something you can actually do. Just throw up your hands like this. And then take a deep breath and bring your hands down. So, you know, do that um, if you're afraid, right? Uh, so you go up and then breathe in deeply. And then slowly as you lower your hands uh, to your waist as you breathe in. And you repeat this three times. So, I mean, I don't know how many of you get scared. I mean, I guess if you're afraid of the dark, you know, I, I don't know. One, though, that's probably a little more necessary for all of us than fear would be anger. You know, the Hebrew word for anger is the same word for nose. Because what happens when you're angry? You know, you flare your nostrils, right? So one of the ways to exaggerate emotion when it comes to anger is to flare your nostrils and clench your fist and, and pose like the Hulk, you know? Just get it out, right? Get it out, out of your system. Get that anger 
somehow, or you know, like some people have punching bags or whatever, you know, somehow release that anger on something else or in some way um, so it calms you down. And then, of course, there's yawning. If you turn your head to the left and yawn, I mean, I haven't done these, all right, I'm just, I'm just saying this is what, I, you know, uh, to the right, you yawn deeply and exaggerate until you actually yawn. That's an actual way to calm yourself down. And then, of course, the one that I like, it's exercising. You know, go for a run. Hit the weights. You know, do some exercise because what that does is that releases adrenaline. It calms you down. Uh, it's a good way to also, it releases positive uh, endorphins in your body and, and really uh, gives you a sense of calm. Um, and, and certainly don't, you know, you, if you exercise often and it's just part of your routine, it's helpful. But um, certainly... Um, that is a way to quiet your body. Another way is to sing, right? And if you can't come up with a song, you know, what, did, what does it say in the scriptures? That David played music and sang to King Saul to calm him down. And so sing. And if you can't figure out a song to sing, then sing happy birthday to yourself. And I guarantee that if you sing happy birthday to yourself, it will bring a smile uh, to, your, uh, to your person. Uh, the other way too would be to take a hot, hot bath. Why? Because when you have the uh, when you're level two, your assessment center goes off. Um, uh, be, uh, when your fight, f f uh, fight, flight, or freeze goes off, your actually your extremities get cold because your core gets warm. And so taking a hat, that's why hot, hot baths are relaxing. Or bundle or, or go into a warm blank, uh, heavy blanket. You know, they say that's way. Or uh, light a candle that's a aroma candle or bake something that smells good because, believe it or not, nice aromas uh, soothe, uh, soothe us. Uh, and then there's tense and release. If you have a hard time relaxing, settling down, tense and release various muscle groups. Like, again, clench your fists or tighten your forearms for a count of five. Then loosen your fingers and flick them around for a count of five. Five, and then finish by rubbing your arms from top to bottom for 10 times and breathing deeply. So that would be examples of quieting your body. How about quieting your, your mind? Um, if you have anxious thoughts, one of the best things to do is try to stop thinking. But that's tough, right? Those thoughts, right? So how do you do that? You distract yourself by doing something else that requires your mind to focus on that something else. That's the way you change up the thought pattern. You get distracted by thinking and doing something else. Now, of course, along the same lines would be replacing your thoughts. And the best way to do that, I believe, is through prayer and getting into God's word. Go right there. Because what anxious thinking often leads to is problem we're trying to solve problems and the problem is that with anxiety they never really seem to be solved and we they just keep racing in our minds over and over again no it's not doing you any good stop it think about something else go to god's word pray another way is to engage relationally if you're overwhelmed with a problem or something's really bothering you find someone you love find someone you know and talk to them see how they're doing that's another great way to change things up. Engage relationally. That will um, quiet your mind. Uh, appreciate for five minutes. We've talked about this. Writing down the things you're grateful for in a journal. You know, celebrating those things. And then sharing those things you're grateful for with, again, with someone else. That will get your relational circuits back on. 
And then finally make a plan. If you have a plan, you have hope, right? God has a plan for us. We have that faith. We have faith in God's plan and we believe that it is good for us even though we may not understand it in the present time. And so one of the ways you can make a plan is ask yourself, if you're overloaded or concerned about what might happen or hypotheticals, ask yourself, what is the worst thing that could happen? Write it out. Ask yourself, what is the best thing that could happen? Write it out about any given situation. What is the most likely thing to happen? Write it out. And then write a plan based on what you think is most likely to happen. Again, this is all getting our ability to express ourselves and, and, and seek the Lord um, and quiet ourselves both in mind and body. And uh, what's interesting about quieting and appreciation is that appreciation can quiet us, but sometimes we need to quiet before we can appreciate. But they go hand in hand. And so that's why when we talk about the ABCs of building bounce, of increasing your joy capacity, appreciation and quieting are the first steps. You have been listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. To learn more about our church, please visit stbartston.org. Again, that's stbartston.org. You can also connect with St. Bartholomew's on Facebook and Instagram through the handle at St. Bart's Anglican Church. And you can connect with this podcast on Facebook through at Transforming Lives Together cast. We hope you will tune in next time as we continue our series, The Can-Do and Joyous Christian. Until then, we leave you with these verses from Paul's letter to the Romans. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God bless. God bless.